whatever we're going to talk about Israeli policy has to be shaped by its particular class structure, how that emerges with a political expression, and what that particular, if you like, political economy of Israel pinpoints as the key actors making decisions about what's happening. And that includes a decision to bomb uh, Gaza back into the Stone Age, or however you'd like to characterize what they're doing. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 190. And this episode is with Richard Wolf, who is Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor at the New School, where he works on economics in the Marxist tradition. And here is the podcast as well. And this could, it's probably not uh, Pins's 190th appearance on the show, but it is Richard's third. And in episode 127, we talked about some profound criticisms of capitalism. And then in episode 154, we focused on distinguishing some facts from some myths about Marx and Marx himself and then Marxism. But this episode is a little bit different. For a long time, I've avoided controversial topics on the show in part because of worries about getting in trouble with school and the job market or alienating listeners or even friends and families. But I've just gotten to a point where I think, fuck it. So hopefully, if you've been with the show for a while or are just finding it, you're open-minded and interested in hearing about complex and controversial issues, even if they're approached from viewpoints that you don't agree with. So with all that being said, this episode and the next two are about Israel and Palestine, and each is from a very different perspective. It's been quite fun and enlightening to prepare for this little mini-series, uh, because the conflict is historically, politically, philosophically, and a bunch of other illies rich, even if it's pretty horrible in many more human ways. But now, as is abundantly clear, this first episode is with Richard, and our first perspective on the conflict uh, is his Marxist perspective, which comes from his his training uh, and his background in economics. So some particular questions we get into are how class figures into the conflict, whether ideology in the Marxist sense plays any pernicious roles, whether Israel should be considered a colonial state, why pro-Palestinian views appear to be suppressed in the United States, and how Marx might have both framed and then attempted to adjudicate this conflict. So if you're liking the things that I'm doing here, then please leave comments, uh, likes, reviews, subscribe. There is now a Patreon, uh, which it would be wonderful if you wanted to join the Geeslings there where you will get 
ad-free episodes. And I believe that Spotify is changing the way that it does ads. So there could very well be many more ads uh, on the show than there currently are in the near future. Uh, and then also show notes. So now, though, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Richard. One of Marx's most well-known sayings is that the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. And while the conflict in Palestine is certainly especially pressing today, a lot of the arguments around the conflict depend on its history. And I'm wondering if, as a Marxist, the first thing you do when you consider the issue is look at its history, and more particularly if you think it's useful to do so through a Marxist lens. Yes, I mean... uh... If there's anything one could say about why it makes sense to use a Marxist lens, uh, one of the reasons for sure is that Marx, and therefore many Marxists since, um, think that the historical perspective is a very important way to understand anything that happens. Or to say the same thing more simply, that whatever happens that you're trying to explain is the result of a whole series of prior events that cumulatively, in their many different ways, help to produce whatever it is you're trying to explain. Not to look at the history uh, is to blind yourself, and there's really no logical reason why you would want uh, uh, why you would want to do that. And likewise, out of the Marxian tradition comes the notion that understanding classes in society is a way to understand the the past, the present, and the way the past has produced the present is, among other ways, by how the class differences emerged, how the conflicts among and within classes shaped that process. Now, you can reduce all that to simple simple-mindedness, but there's no need to do that. Marx didn't do that. If you read Das Kapital, the the major work associated with his economic analysis, you'll know that he, for example, did not deal with capitalism as if it had two classes. He was much more nuanced than that. You know, the working class is divided, for example, between the productive and the unproductive laborers. He makes a very big analytic around that. Capitalists are divided between uh, money lending capitalists, merchant capitalists, and industrial capitalists. And volume three of Capital is an elaborate differentiation of the roles they play in capitalism. To reduce all of that apparatus of class analysis to the notion that he had, you know, the capitalists and the workers, that's childish. It's caricature. It can be used uh, as an early stage of teaching people something. But if you stop at that point, then all the richness of the analysis is gone. So with that said, 
I don't think that kind of approach is applied very often um, in the discussions of Israel versus the Palestinians. Um, and that's because most of the participants in these discussions on on all the different sides, if one could say that, uh, that most of them are not much aware of the Marxian tradition and therefore don't make use of it. They make use of other traditions. They don't do that self-consciously. They imagine that the particular tradition in which they work is either the only one or the correct one, as if there were such a thing. I mean, I don't do that. You can't do that within the Marxian framework. You know, Marx's teacher was Hegel. Hegel is the culmination of the Western tradition of epistemology, which is aware that human beings see and experience the world differently. It's exciting and interesting to see and understand the differences, but there is no absolute standard to choose among the different ways. That's what they are different. And you have to come to terms with that difference. You know, it's a little bit like if you had a, a certain kind of mentality that couldn't understand that there are different ways of eating food. Knife and fork is one, Chopsticks is another, using your hands is another, and so on. Imagine a person who couldn't leave it at that. Explore the different feelings, the different tastes, the different experiences that are shaped by the utensils that you don't do or do not use. Imagine a person who couldn't get into that, but who had to determine a little bit crazily which is the right way to eat. Whoa. You know, you back away from that kind of person because you'd see it as a mental weakness. Well, the same applies to ways of thinking. To ways of thinking about Israel-Palestine or anything else you might want to think about. There are different ways of doing it. And the differences matter, absolutely. I'm not talking about indifference. Not at all. The opposite. I'm a passionate believer in some and a enemy of others of ways of looking at the world. But I don't need to assert that mine is the true way and you that that way lies a level of anti-human behavior. I don't want to go anywhere near. But having said that, um I'm assuming from what you told me that you're interested in how that approach might have something to say about the Israel-Gaza-Palestine tragedy that is playing out uh, around us literally as we speak. No, that, that's absolutely correct. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about the immense disparity in wealth between a place like Gaza and Israel proper, and then right. the allegations of an apartheid uh, sort of state, both both of which uh, are not distinct from one another, but clearly have, or the applicate, the Marxist framework clearly has applications to these scenarios. But then I was also thinking about uh, more historically focused. Uh, the question of whether or not Israel is a colonial state or a refugee state 
because these two different classifications, I think, have important implications for whether we think of there as being an important class distinction between the Palestinians and the Israelis. If the Palest if Israel is a refugee state, then maybe both uh, groups should have been thought of, historically speaking, as belonging to maybe a, a similar lower class. And then I, I was wondering whether or not the Marxist framework lends itself to the adjudication of disputes over land rights. But these are just a few of the ways in which I was wondering how the Marxist framework might apply, but maybe you have an idea for how you like to think about it. All right. Yeah. Let me, um, I'm a little taken aback. I've never heard the concept refugee uh, state. That's very interesting. Yeah, you know, as I, as I was preparing for these, I'll just uh, yeah. respond to that a little bit. For sure. as I was preparing for this conversation, and I I'm having a a couple of others on the same topic. I tried to read, an, I I read a number of books that take different viewpoints. Some that identify as resolutely Zionist. Some that identify as resolutely pro-Palestine. Some that. Uh, don't think that we should be appealing to these ideologies at all. But one of the things I got out of a particularly Zionist book by a woman named Noah Tishby is that Israel ought to be considered a, a refugee state because uh, it was populated by people who were displaced by such things as the Holocaust, for instance. Um. I, I, that's a whole other discussion, and if you want to have that, I'll be glad to do that. But t focusing more in on um, on Israel Palestine, um, you can the the concept of a refugee would would have to come from the concept of refuge. In other words that people are running away from something uh, scary or threatening or difficult or, or dangerous, uh, and they seek safe refuge somewhere else. And as they run from the location that is dangerous to the location that is a refuge, they thereby become a refugee, a person that has made that movement. If that's your your standard, unless you have specifics about what it is you're running away from, then the United States is populated by refugees. Most of the immigrants that came to the United States were people that literally could not survive where they were and left because of it. And that's true right to this minute. If you look at the the tens or hundreds of thousands of people massed on the border of the United States and Mexico or, or coming in from Central America, those are people who are refugees from intolerable economic, political, military situations, climate change, and so on, that make uh, staying where they are impossible. And that makes... Uh, Israel, just another example 
of a place to which people ran who were seeking refuge from the dangers that they faced um, in Europe. And this might, in the interest of transparency, make it useful for me to explain briefly that uh, my mother was born in Berlin, Germany, and my father in France. And both of them were refugees who left Europe and came to the United States, as many did in those years. So I'm an American. I was born in the United States, but I was born to parents who were refugees. Uh, and so, I mean, I'm part of that story. Uh, it, and I'm sure that shapes what I'm about to say to you in, in all kinds of, uh, of ways. Okay, here are some distinctions that I would find important, and you'll see the Marxism wrapped up in that. And these are distinctions that are often lost sight of. Um, there are profound class differences inside Israel. And there are profound class differences inside Palestine. And you can ignore all of that. And you can develop an analysis in which there is a thing, a unified thing called Israel, and, and it's juxtaposed to a unified thing called Palestine. You can do that. I don't do it, but you can do it. And it would be important, if you choose to do that, to at least acknowledge that that's a very particular way of thinking. Okay, it's strange too, because the notion of a unified society is usually awfully easy to disassemble, to make fun of, to disaggregate. Is the United States currently active supporting the Ukraine? I don't think so. Is the United States currently and fill in the blank. I don't find that very useful. Immediately you say such a thing, someone can point out to you that the, the United States isn't agreed on that at all, that there are profound differences, and that in fact the actions of the so-called United States are taken by whoever is in power in the United States, and therefore governed by the conditions of their power, the opposition to their power. And that's as important in telling the story of what's happening as to assert that there is this national entity. The whole notion of using the nation state as the actor in the world development is peculiar. Maybe to make this clearer, in case it isn't, it would be to say something like the following. What supports the Ukraine uh, activity are American men. What support Israel are American men. Stop. If I talked like that, you would stop me 
and you would ask, "What? What are you? What, what are you talking about, men? What's, it, what's that got to do with anything?" Ah, I could then tell you a story. I could, I wouldn't, but I could tell you a story about how this is all a male thing, and that women are very much secondary, excluded, ambivalent. I, I could do all kinds of weird things, weird because we don't do it normally, but it's a way of looking at the world in which the gender difference is somehow crucial. Or to get closer to the reality, I could make it racial. I could talk about racial differences. What about them? Where does that come from? How did... How does that play its role? I don't do that. I, I, by the way, I don't dispute that you could do that. That is a way of approaching this question. Not mine, but it's an alternative. But talking about nations, I find a bizarre, weird, widespread, no question, I'm not disputing it's widespread, but it's very particular, and I don't do it. So I begin, there are class differences. Those class differences play themselves out. For example, the Israel at the early stages has an enormous influence of people who were self-consciously Marxist, socialists, and communists. They set up the kibbutzim movement, for which Israel was very famous in its early decades, of people who were refugees but who went to Israel to establish a non-capitalist economic system. That effort was defeated. It was fought by other refugees who came with a very different interest, an interest that was either not socialist or anti-socialist. That's a whole nother conversation. But the Israel you see today is the extreme opposite of what all of those people had in mind when they helped to found the modern state of Israel, uh, looking at it since uh, 1948, rather than going back earlier. In fact, Israel today is governed by the most right-wing religious coalition that has ever governed Israel. Therefore, what you're seeing, to call it all Israel, strikes me as bizarre. The decision to deal with Hamas the way it has been dealt with, that's a decision of this government, partly shaped by previous government's positions, which were not the same, and for sure the decision to bomb and destroy Gaza the way that has been done in the last hundred days is a decision of a very particular kind of government that reflects a particular part of the class structure of Israel. I mean, I don't know if you've covered this in other conversations, but if you have any doubt about what I'm saying, then just read the history of the year before October, the year before all of this war in Gaza began, there were the biggest, some of the biggest street demonstrations in the history of Israel in which an enormous mass of people 
turned against the religious right-wing government on a whole series of domestic and particularly judicial issues that had come up. As that government tried to give itself much more power than any earlier Israeli government that I'm aware of even tried to do, and certainly more than any of them uh, succeeded in doing. And even this latest effort was defeated in the end by the Supreme Court inside uh, is for the moment. I, I don't imagine that it's over. So I, I begin right away by saying whatever we're going to talk about Israeli policy has to be shaped by its particular class structure, how that emerges with a political expression, and what that particular, if you like, political economy of Israel pinpoints as the key actors making decisions about what's happening. And that includes a decision to bomb uh, Gaza back into the Stone Age, or however you'd like to characterize what they're doing. Um, coming at it from a slightly different angle, but very important. Israel is a, is a peculiar historical creation. If you think of it as, and I know there's earlier history, but if you think of it in the modern term, after World War II, look at the period since World War II, the state of Israel, all of that. Then, or if you want to go back to the mandate from Britain, you can, but it's not necessary. Israel exists as a project of modern capitalist colonialism. Its creation, whether you call that British, or its sustenance, whether you call that American or not, identify who makes it possible. And it made a lot of sense if you were a Zionist to hook yourself up to, to go into dealings with the British at the turn of the century, the dominant empire still then, and then to move over after World War II as the dominant global empire was no longer the English who stopped mattering and became the Americans who were the new empire. And that has been true since World War II the United States was the protector, the colonial power, if you like, protecting its extension in that part of the world, Israel. Okay, here's then the problem. Every empire that has ever grown up has also died. Every empire has had a period of birth, growth, maturity, peak, decline, disappearance. Okay. Now that can be done with, with skill, that experience. It can be done with a certain finesse, or it can be resisted and eventually become ridiculous. The British, unfortunately, are now showing us what it means to eventually become ridiculous. So here is a country that doesn't matter anymore, 
that is the irrelevant junior deputy assistant of the United States. It's particularly bizarre because it's role reversal since Britain was once the dominant power and the colony in North America a detail. The detail is now the dominant and the dominant has become the detail. So they're gone. And the United States' economy, its, its empire, is now declining, which raises an enormous and powerful question for a country like Israel, unless the people there and the commentators refuse to look at it, pretend that it isn't there. I'm going to be blunt now, just in the interest of getting the idea clear and out there. Israel has to ask itself whether it has attached itself to the wrong horse in the race. Hmm. The rising part of world economy now, capitalism, socialism, put that aside, is BRICS, the People's Republic of China and its allies. Israel has chosen to ally itself 150% with that part of the world that is in decline. And that is a very profound decision with enormous consequences far greater than anything having to do with Palestine. And yet, you're not going to encounter in the books and articles you read anything like the level of attention to this basic question that it deserves, which is a hint, since it doesn't take a genius to see this, that you, if, if there's something that's kind of out there that anybody can look at and see, and if there's no refusal to deal with it, then what becomes interesting is why the refusal? Why is it necessary not to have the kind of obvious question. And to underscore it, let me be clear. In Germany today, in Spain, in Italy, in France, that question is being discussed at the highest levels with profound arguments and disagreements among the leaders of those societies. Israel is, is not only not doing it, Israel pretends it's not an appropriate thing to be doing and acts accordingly. I find that a sign of what? Well, I find it a sign of what you would find parallel here in the United States. A leadership, government, uh, Republican, Democrat, all of those people, for whom what I have just been saying about the decline of the American empire is an unthinkable thought you know, I'm part of, uh, I come out of the uh, elite institutions of this country. So I know what conferences and seminars are going on there because I still have a marginal role to play in all of that. There are no discussions about this. Hmm. There are isolated individuals who bring it up in a discussion, and then there's a moment of discomfort as though someone has had a flatulence problem in the room, you know? And yeah, everybody smiles and 
and, and rolls their eyes because Professor Rico Binko said such a such an odd thing. But he's doing, you know, he's your odd fellow. That kind of thing. Very strange. Humorous, but also in the Freudian sense, very revealing. Very revealing. Now on the Palestinian side, they too have a very complicated class structure. They too have employers and employees, which is what I mean by class differences. They too are objects of class analysis, and that has been done for many uh, Muslim countries, for many Arab countries, uh, for Palestine as well. So what is Hamas? What is Hezbollah? What, what, what is the Palestinian Authority? Who, who are these people? Who do they represent? Whose policies are going on? All of that would be, for me, germane to understanding what in the world is going on that produces this kind of behavior. Lastly, I admit I'm an American. I was born here. I've lived here all my life. I've worked in American universities all my life. And so I, I am unavoidably shaped by this country's history. Well, three or 400 years ago, depending on how you count, this country made a decision to populate itself with slaves to bring an enormous number of African people here. In this case, as slaves, in this case, against their will, etc., etc. At the same time, this country engaged in a violent program of ethnic cleansing, which involved the systematic destruction of what we now weirdly call indigenous people, a few of which are actually left. Ah, that's a, that's a heavy legacy. War, killing, one ethnic group, another one. Wow. Why do I bring it up? Because despite everything, here we are in the year 2024, and the impact, the costs, the horrors of all of that are still with us. We have been unable to free this generation from the burdens of what was done. Israel will reap the consequences of what has happened above all now with this, this unspeakable behavior in Gaza because that's what happens. Nobody forgets. It doesn't get lost. The behavior of those who win is as awful in sustaining the horror as the behavior of those who lose and lost. It's a terrible model, but it applies so precisely. Are you kidding? You really think you can somehow bull your way through and not have to pay the price? 
the election last night in the Republican primary in Iowa is part of the consequence of what I just talked about. That we can have a character like Trump, that you could have large numbers of people feeling so upset and angry, etc. My goodness, what is going on? So for me, when I approach the Arab-Israeli, I'm looking at the different class structures, how they shape the politics, how they have produced political movements that could do what Hamas did when all of this started, that could do what Netanyahu and his government are doing now after what was done then in the context of their history as a colonial project. The only thing even more troubling to me about it all than what I've just said is that these categories that I'm using are so rarely deployed, are so unavailable to people's mental equipment, that they miss all of the insights that come if you use them. It's not, I'm not asking people to agree that this is the way to go. This is the way I go because the way it makes sense to me. But I know I have to pay attention to other people, which I have no choice given I live in America. If I turn on the radio or television, I'm getting a different analysis all day, every day. I also teach in the American university system where I get a different analysis all day, every day. And I've been to the so-called best universities where the so-called best professors did their level best to shape me in a way I didn't go with. So I know what they argue. Some of them are my friends. I think I told you last time that you know my classmate at Yale, when I got my PhD, Janet Yellen, we had the same teachers, the same courses. You know what I mean? So I, I know what they're thinking. I know how they think. They miss an entire universe of understanding because they will not engage the conceptual apparatus you need to get those insights. So they don't get them and reject them. Some of them with arrogance suggest they've done that. They have. They don't know anything. When I speak with them, I understand their literature, their language, their concept, because I had to learn it. When I talk to explain mine, I get that look, the glazed look about, you know, I wish I were having a cup of coffee rather than talking to you. But they're polite and we're friends and they wouldn't say it. But I get it. So if I were to, to do, if that's where you want to take this conversation, then that's, that's where I would go. That's how I would go. I would go after some attempt to understand the structures of these societies that produce this kind of uh, horror show. Mm-hmm. I guess for transparency, I ought to say too, given the topic, most of my family perished in the concentration camps of Germany. So I'm, I'm talking very close family. I don't have much family left because my mother and father were among the very few members of our extended families that got out in time. 
I'm fluent in French and German because my parents, in, in whose house I grew up, spoke those languages. I only learned English when they dropped me in the kindergarten uh, here in the United States. That's when I had to learn my third language. I keep up with events in Europe because of that. Um, I have family that are Israeli citizens and have been for a long time. So I, I have a little bit of a knowledge that way. Um, and so people just should know that that's part of the formation out of which, well, I have to say, that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a, a, a ton there to chew on. And I could just ask some simple questions like, how should Israel respond to Hamas? But I think that more conceptually interesting and sticking to this uh, idea of how structure affects and forms the conflict would be to bite onto this notion you mentioned of thinking of the nation as the actor as very strange. I read this interview, this influential interview of Chomsky by a scholar named Muin Rabani, in which he pointed out that the nation is a very historically recent phenomenon. And I think he advocates for a, a no state sort of solution to this problem. But my guess is that Marx would argue that the notion of nations are just a form of ideology that serves the upper class, as are some of the other categories that contribute to this conflict, like race, religion, and so on. And then connecting with what you said about the extermination of the Native Americans, this was just another example where this ideology, and I'm, I'm donning my Marx hat here, uh, like racial, religious class categories, justified the colonists' acquisition of land and resources. But returning to Israel and Palestine, I suppose that the immediate question that arises out of all of this is whether you think that this is an example, crucially, where ideology leads to mass societal dysfunction, and then whether it's the key thing that's standing in the way of solving this dispute. Well, the, the word ideology is very tricky. Um, most of the time, it is used in a way loaded with pejorative meaning. In other words, ideology is the word you use not only to describe what some other people think, but already to cast aspersions, to already raise the expectation that you're about to deliver some sort of uh, attempted knockout blow to dissuade them from persisting with this way of thinking. I look at it differently. Every society's class differences show up directly or indirectly in particular ways of thinking. Human beings experience life differently. Let's make it personal just between you and me. You didn't have my mother, and I didn't have your mother, and you didn't have my father, etc., etc. So there's no way you and I could have emerged from the formative stage of our lives, first five years, or first 10, or however you want to count it, without significant differences in how we make sense of the world. 
because yours were shaped in a profound way by a mother and father that were not mine and vice versa. Therefore, human beings make sense of the world differently. You grew up in a different town. You went to a different school. You had different playmates, You and on and on and on. So I expect to find different ways of thinking about the world all around me. If you want to get down to details, differences between me and each other individual. I'm married, for example. There are profound differences between me and my wife, between me and her and our two children, etc., etc. Now, I understand you can clump together people who have lots of differences but have a broad agreement about some things. Yeah. And you can call those philosophies or ways of thinking or intellectual approaches or, if you like, ideologies. They're part of life. We have different ways of making sense of the world. And that becomes true with all those concepts that some of us, in the heat of our commitment to them, take out of their historical conditions of existence and raise up to some absolute standard as if they were there before any of us thought them and that they are there independent of how we think about them and they are the criterion or the standard by which we distinguish truth from falsity. I don't believe any of that. So for me, notions man, woman, white, black, uh, Jew, Christian, nation, these are creations. These were ways that people put aside their differences to agree on something. If you push real closely, they never really agreed on it. They agreed to not talk about the disagreements they had about that subject, which we all do. One of the ways we compromise every day in our daily life. So no, none of these concepts exists outside the framework of how society creates it. By the way, Marx wrote a wonderful essay about Jews in order to make that same point. Very famous essay called On the Jewish Question. Because in Germany, I don't know if you're aware of it, but uh, Marx's father was of Jewish origin but participated in the 19th century. Uh, this already started in the 18th century, but there was a massive movement in Europe among Christians and Jews to walk away from these religious traditions, to see them as outmoded, and to, to think of themselves instead as a new generation of what in English got called free thinkers, and actually in German, people who think freely. Um, and the fa Marx's father converted out of Judaism to become a free thinker. And Marx, that, that was what Marx then took. And for Marx, these were not relevant categories anymore. They were objects of interest. And he wrote that essay, you know, what does it mean to be Jewish, trying to understand how historically 
this particular identification uh, becomes important uh, enough for people to, to take it seriously. Well, the same thing applies to the notion of a homeland for Jews. So Jews split, as a, if you know the history of that community, between those who wanted a land, a place, a country, Zionists, and Jews who were not in favor of that. And they didn't like each other, and they fought lots of battles. And the majority of Jews, I, mean, I don't know how you count this, but my, my understanding is that the majority of Jews never became Zionists and did not have any intention and have not gone to Israel, etc. Israel had difficulties, and so there was an interest in Israel to capture the loyalty, if they could, of Jews who didn't go to Israel. And they made a lot of efforts to do that, some of which were successful, others not so much. But you right away get the understanding that that part of the Jewish universe that goes to Israel is already self-selectively different from the part that doesn't. That's an important distinction because it becomes a way of differentiating subgroups within the community. Likewise, as I mentioned before, there is the difference between the socialistically, communistically oriented kibbutz uh, mentality that remains part of the Israeli uh, society that was once much bigger and more powerful than it is today. Uh, but those are folks that are not at all pleased with the dominance of modern capitalism inside Israel. If you ever look at the parliamentary breakdown of different political parties, and in, in case your audience is not familiar, there are many political parties in uh, Israel. It's not two like here. There are many, and many of them are left-wing, and uh, you know, and there are many parties that are against the policy in Gaza and against Netanyahu, and working very hard to dump him out of office and to put him in jail, because he has a lot of outstanding legal challenges, sort of like Trump, bribery. His wife has been uh, and so forth. He dismisses it all as political in just the way Mr. Trump does. But those are the truths of what's going on there. Who do they rep? Where's the Israeli working class? Where is it? Where are the trade unions related to those political parties? What positions do they take? Is it clear that they support all of this? Is that support unconditional? Is that support temporary during the war, but then they will go their own way? Those are open questions. I have what I think are the answers, but I'm not so sure that's an ongoing, uh, fast-changing kind of situation. And much the same is true um, in the Arab world, inside Palestine, in the larger Muslim world being drawn into all of this. And if I could go back and talk for a moment about the change in the global economy, once you bring Iran, 
Egypt and Saudi Arabia into the BRICS family, which is where they are now, and you ally them with China, India, uh, then what Israel is doing in Gaza is a, a taking of a risk for Israel in terms of the next 10 or 20 years that I, I find, I'm not Israeli, I'm not about to go there. But if I were Israeli, I'd be terrified. I'd be terrified that you've just made a commitment that is crazy. I mean that literally. Let me give you an idea of how crazy. Over the last week, the United States decided, again, making a similar mistake, that it was going to bomb Yemen. Publicly, loudly do that, which they did. Assisting them, and I use the word assisting with a smile. The irrelevant deputy assistant was called in to do a little bombing alongside. That's Britain. Britain is a joke. No one needs it. It plays no definitive, decisive role whatsoever. And it didn't in this adventure in Yemen. But the foreign secretary, Mr. Cameron, and the defense guy, Scraps, or whatever his name is, gave an amazing statement. We went on TV to talk about we're bombing Yemen. And why are we bombing Yemen? Because the enemy is Iran. And then uttered these words. The whole world is watching, and we all know in the world that it's Iran that's behind the Houthis who are throwing missiles on those ships in the Red Sea. The whole world is... He's speaking for the United States and Britain. What the whole world is doing is cheering on the Houthis. He's so far gone, he can't see that. He is still... The British Empire, this cold, wet, offshore island of the continent of Europe, still imagines it. it's as if some politician in Rome got up and spoke about the Holy Roman Empire, and someone had to tap him on the shoulder and said, that was gone a thousand years ago, Jack. You can't speak like that anymore. No one gives a crap what you think. No, in the, in the, why am I telling you this? Because the, the inability to think for a minute, how is this experience we're going through understood differently by other people? And why would they think about it differently? We don't have that. We go back to the epistemological problem. There's a right and a wrong way. Mr. Cameron thinks he's got the right way to think about it. So he doesn't have to worry. Why do you study a wrong perspective? We know what the right one is. It happens to be mine. So I don't have to do the work 
of understanding why you see it differently. What is Israel going to do? Hitching its horse to the United States. They didn't even do it that badly during the Cold War. Israel tried to hold on to its own relationships with the Soviet Union. I don't know if your audience is aware of it, but they did. And the Soviets responded. They were clearly American allies, but they, but not now. They're foreclosing that because they are doing what they're doing. And that doesn't seem to register. They can't even hear in Israel President Biden saying to them, hey, you're going too far even for me. And that's not a good sign since I'm considered to be going pretty far in that direction. You don't really want to outgo to me. You really don't want to do it. And I don't want you to. It'll make my life more difficult. This, for me, is usually a sign in which you have disconnected the decision-making apparatus, which happens sometimes, from all the underlying real struggles and conflicts, so that now the leaderships are making decisions that are good and connected to a part of the larger society, but they are no longer taking into account the alternative perspectives without which you make unspeakable mistakes in life. If you don't understand that your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your children are different people who see and experience the world differently. You are going to have misunderstandings between yourself and them that can be, often are, catastrophic. You're much better off trying to understand how they see. You don't have to agree with them, but you can work out the differences of perspective and hold on to love and other connections you have with them. But you destroy that opportunity if you live in that world in which you've got it, you've got it right, and everybody else is in the lame place of error. And for me, we're already at that in Israel and Gaza. And if you don't pull back and figure out an alternative way, you're going to do a level of, I mean, already probably too late, a level of damage and horror that, like the race issue of the United States, will not go away. It will haunt you in a thousand ways for the foreseeable future. Hmm. This idea of there being a a right and a wrong way of thinking about things and that this needs to be reconsidered and abandoned. This notion that there's a, a dichotomy for everything is, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> it's one of the major meta points. I think that have threaded through our conversations. One of my favorite points that you've made uh, was in our first conversation. And it, it was very clear. You just said that China is extraordinarily powerful. There are sort of 
antithesis on the other side of the world and to ignore them and try not to think the way that the Chinese government thinks, even if you believe that it is ridiculous, is itself ridiculous because of how powerful they are. Well, that's and right. here, though, we we are talking about <clears throat> Marx, and that is the framework that we're taking in looking at these issues. And in our last discussion, we discussed some of the myths about him. And one is that he's responsible for all of the tragedies that happened in communist China or Russia because he gave them the roadmap uh, for how to govern. But this is wrong, as you pointed out, because he did not sketch out how the post-revolution society ought to be governed and organized. What he did was diagnose the problems. So that being said, I, for the moment, want to put the notion of how the conflict ought to be resolved from a Marxist perspective aside. But what I would like to ask is, given the particulars of this conflict, which, as you noted, Israel is a unique historical development, what do you think Marx's diagnosis of the conflict would be? And then what would his case be for Palestine? In my thinking, war, the mass slaughter of human beings by human beings is itself an extraordinary moment. I take dreadfully seriously, and there's my personal history coming into play, no doubt, that there is something qualitatively and quantitatively different in the act of warfare relative to everything else. Um, I infer from that, or I start from that point, and my brain says to me, what would possess any government, or for that matter, any movement, even down to the individual, what level of tension, conflict, pressure, difficulty, pain would lead you to undertake the project of purposefully seeking out ways to wound or kill other people? For me, it's the same question if there's a criminal who shoots people in the course of robbing a bank or something. What? What? How did John or Mary get to this point? How did Hamas get to that point of what they did? How did the Israel? And my answer usually is a complicated analytic of what got them to that point. What is Israel doing? Is it really trying as a society to accommodate influx of people from outside coupled with internal growth and, and not figuring out how to manage this? 
do they really need more land? They know better than the rest of us what the demand for more land means in their context in that part of the world, given its history. You've got to be kidding. You demand more settlements, more land to expand what you do, what you have an intrinsic right to expand. What are you doing? You can't do that. We must do it. Well, you would have to work out an arrangement with the lands around you if you're really going to go that direction. Or you may not be able to expand. You may have to stay at a certain spot. On and on. But if you can't work that out, if you if you have obstacles built into your social structure that does not allow you to think like that, then you build up a level of pressure that's too much. So in Israel, you put a level of pressure that has, as an interesting consequence, an accommodation for one part of the population, non-Arab, and that is organized by the forcible accommodation of the Arab part. One gets larger, the other one gets squeezed more. Okay, that'll get you five years. At the end of five years, the squeezing will explode the people you're squeezing. And then if you keep doing it, you get Hamas. And you get what Hamas did. Look, and I know this kind of thing is misunderstood all the time by people who want to, but you're not one of those, and I'm hoping your audience won't be. Hamas's actions, horrible, horrible actions, put their demands and issues on the agenda of the world. If that was their goal, they've succeeded. And by Israel responding, they have now become not only the ones who are suffering, but the ones who are in some way justified in their upset because of the suffering, even though they took the first step in October. It's extraordinary. And people will not understand the way the world works if they don't understand that every other movement in the world of people that are oppressed, badly treated, relatively second-class or third-class citizens in a society that disregards them will find an identity with the Palestinians and Hamas will have learned a lesson. You want to put your issue front and center for the whole world to see? Because you're desperate for the attention you hope will somehow help you? Here's a model. And the Israelis are going to forever discover the pain of losing the identity of the Holocaust victim because they can now be presented as having perpetrated a Holocaust 
all of their own. It's a terrible, terrible mistake. Which, by the way, here's an irony, which I assume you know, but if not, there's more opposition to what Israel is doing in Gaza inside Israel than is allowed in the United States. Bizarre. What do you mean by that? What I mean is, in Israel, there are newspapers on the street, there are demonstrations, there are marches in the university by significant numbers of people, including newspapers, uh, unions, political parties, against this war, stop the war, against Netanyahu. We can't do that here. Harvard University president, I'm not for her or against her, she's gone. She's gone as one of the (coughs) sacrificial lambs because it is too troubling here to have passionate disagreement with Israel, to say it crudely or in poor taste or etc., or or even anti-Semitically. What's that about? What the world are you going to do? What is this? It's also, I mean... It has to be understood. The African-American community here, their sympathies are the other way. If you go to Ireland today, you'll see that the majority of opinion in Ireland is with the Palestinians. What's that about? Answer. You know what that's about? Because Palestine and Israel strikes Irish people like Britain and Ireland. A lot. Whoa. (laughs) The point is not here to quarrel with the parallels. That's not what's relevant here. What's relevant here is enough people see it that you've got to take all of this into account. It's not that you have to agree with it. You don't. But to pretend it's not there, to pretend it's all dismissible, can't do that. It'll That, that perspective will come back and bite you in the rear end just when you were hoping to sit down. And you won't be able to sit down because it'll hurt. And and this this seems to me so obvious that... Let me give you another way of getting at it. And I think we touched on this once before. When I was a student at Harvard, at Stanford, and at Yale, my three schools that I attended, I would raise my hand in class And I would ask a question connected in some way to the Marxist tradition, which I was then learning. Not learning in the schools. They didn't offer me any help. But I would ask a question, you know. And it would often be more or less, here's the Marxist interpretation of something. What do you think, professor, whatever? And I had, broadly speaking, two kinds of answers. Some of them came from good teachers, and I had those, and some of them came from your normal average teacher. The first kind was, that's not an appropriate question for this class. You should ask that, and then they'd give me some name of some other professor or some other department. I should go do that. By the way, early in my college career, I actually did that and discovered they got the same answer wherever I went next, so this was a waste of time. The second 
was much more nuanced. The second kind of answer was brief, often not quite to the point, but that's not what's interesting. What was interesting were the eyes of the man or woman that was the professor. And the eyes said to me, please don't pursue this. They were eyes, if, if I had to attach a word to, to the facial expression, fear. And a few times, especially with good teachers, I went and pursued, I had office hours, so I could sit down one-on-one -on -one with the professor and ask, which I did. And here's the answer I got, not usually the first time, second or third time. If I respond to your question, I am going to get a reputation around here of being interested in, concerned with Marx and Marxism. Hmm. I can't do that. And you know something? Even though I was 20 years old and, and I'm not that savvy, I understood what they were telling me. It is not good for their career. It just isn't. And they basically said to me, if you want to discuss those things, come to office hours. We can, I'll talk to you about it. But don't do that in class. Don't do that in class. And I learned, and I spent, I just want you to remind you, 10 years of my life, 20 semesters, two a year for 10 years, Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. And that's what I got. I got uh, the peak, self-defining peak of higher education in the country, so overwhelmed by the Cold War that they didn't just hate Russia and all of that, communism. They weren't going to learn it. They weren't going to read it. They weren't going to think of it. Their loyalty took the form of pretending that they had no obligation, neither as a teacher nor just as an informed citizen, to have some sense. Who are these people? What? No, they're bad. They're bad. And the few who did who defied the taboo, they would talk to me in their office hours, but not, not beyond that. You know that. That's why I'm going to overstate. Part of the difficulty this country has now is the product of 70 years of that kind of Cold War mentality. That's why you can still live in a world of right and wrong ways of eating or dressing or thinking or dancing or theorizing. You can't handle, we do it differently. And that doesn't make me good and you bad or vice versa. It's, we're all complicated, all very hard for America. Very, very hard. Saddam Hussein was defined as Hitler. Putin is defined as Hitler. Or Stalin might be better. And Stalin was defined as Hitler. It's just, you have to demonize the bad guys. 
And, you know, and then there's this surprise by the liberals who practice this as bad as anybody. They are very offended when the conservatives are so under pressure in this country that they begin talking about the liberals as if they were Stalinists. They apply the same divisive horror demonization. Look at Mr. Trump. He gets up on the podium and he runs off. We're going to get the communists, the Democrats, the socialists, the trans. He's got them all lumped together in a kind of collective demonization in which they become synonymous one with the other, indistinguishable except for their common quality of utter evil. Wow. Wow. This is not just some peculiar politician. Mr. Trump, you know, is a creature of the moment. But that moment is the historical culmination. And so he picks up the lingo and the spirit and, and says back to people what they're saying to him. And there's a bond that's made there, which you could see in Iowa last night. You know, it's a remarkable. And I think you see this very, very badly played out in that bizarre factoid that it's harder to be uh, criticizing Israeli policy in the United States than it is in Israel. It's just extraordinary for a country that is effectively at war. Uh, it has failed. This government has failed to persuade an enormous part of Israeli society that what it is doing is the right thing to do. In my perspective, that's lucky for Israel that they have that, that they have some debate, some dissension. It's not conducted at the level I would have hoped, but there's, whereas in this country, it's, it's extraordinary. I've been, I've been at places and people can't articulate their point of view because they're interrupted as if they were, were, were spreading moral leprosy in the room by saying something critical of Israel or positive about Palestine. What kind of behavior? You would call it childish, except it's dangerous in a way that childish things usually aren't. Have I taken us too far afield? <laughs> no, you haven't. I mean, there are a million things to talk about regarding the conflict and its connection to Marx. And of course, its connection to the United States and why... Israel and the United States are so closely tied together. You mentioned, I, I think you mentioned Britain and the bombing in Yemen, but something quite fascinating is that in all of these UN resolutions uh, sanctioning or, or criticizing Israel, the United States is the only major power that is always on Israel's side. And this raises plenty of questions. I don't know if you want to jump onto that, but I think also that given that time is running away from us and granted everything I said a few minutes ago about Marx not giving the roadmap for how to govern the post-revolution world, I'm wondering if you, qua Marxist, still have 
a roadmap for how you would like to see this conflict? Well, I guess maybe there there are two points to this. There's really the the utopian ideal way that this conflict gets resolved, and then there's the what could actually practically happen. Yeah, let me let me try to to respond. Marx enjoyed making fun of people who predict the future. Nobody can do that, he said, and I'm not going to uh, pretend otherwise. So I'm, I'm not. The future will be decided in and by the people of the future. You know that that's it's not not for me to do, uh, and I can't do it anyway. Um, so let me let me then turn though utopian views. Good, that's a, that's the right. I think that one of the root causes, and here comes the Marxism, one of the root causes of the problems we see in that part of the world is the division of people into a small minority that are employers, that are in the position of owning a business, running a business, expanding a business, sitting on the board of directors of a business. In the United States, depending on how you count using the census data, that's between 1% and 3% of the population. I'm assuming in Israel, more or less the same. I'm assuming in Palestine, more or less the same. The vast majority even if it isn't the same. The vast majority of people in all of these societies are not employers. <coughs> They're employees. Perhaps in Palestine, because of their conditions, and the disproportionate number of those who are employees are also employers in the sense that they're self-employed, that they, whatever way they earn income, they do it on their own as an individual, this or that. But even with that modification, we've got a class structure in the way Marx understood it. Just a footnote. Marx has a different concept of class than do other people. The, the concept of class is older than Marx, much older. You can go as far back as ancient Greece, and you will find in Athens and Sparta, in the world of Plato and Socrates, awareness that it's important to understand who has a lot of property, who has no property at all, and who has a little. And those people can be divided, or if you like, classified, using the verb to classify, into the rich, the poor, and the middle. So you don't need Marx to understand the category or the concept of dividing a population according to what they own, how much wealth they accrue as income or hold as wealth. That's one concept of class as property. The rich, the poor, the propertied, the propertyless. There's a second ancient concept of class. It's not about what you own. It's about the power that you wield. 
Are you an order giver in the community or are you an order taker? Or are you somewhere in the middle? You have to take some and you give others. Then you have a class analysis with, with adjectives like ruling class or ruled class. Marx inherited those categories. He didn't invent them. He doesn't deserve any credit for them. Human beings have used them to understand, to criticize, to transform their societies for thousands of years. But Marx adds another concept, another way to classify people into classes, the class of those who produce wealth, the workers, and the class of those who gather that wealth into their own hands, the appropriators of what the workers produce that they do not themselves consume, or what he called the surplus. Those who appropriate the surplus versus those who produce it. That's a different notion of class. I'm going to use Marxists, and I'm going to say that if you divide the workplace, every workplace, the factory, the office, the store, if you divide it into a small group of people who are the employers versus a large group of people who are the employees, you have made a profound choice from which you are not going to escape by being blandly able to say, I had no idea. Uh, I understand that. You may not have been conscious of it. But you did it, and you're doing it now. When Marx makes the quotation with which you began today's conversation, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle. What he meant was, in slavery, it was the master and the slave. In feudalism, it was the lord and the serf. And in capitalism, it's the employer and the employee. And now I'm going to be your Marxist essentialist for a moment. That's the problem. You are dividing people in a profound way at the point where they produce the goods and services without which they could not live. You have organized production around a relationship that is inherently unequal unjust, and violently explosive. And it sets in motion, that's what Marx wrote about in most of his life, a series of social consequences, which of course will vary from one culture and one history to another, but a series of consequences played out in one country or another that ought to begin to give you the following idea and this would be my contribution to Israel-Palestine. You want to overcome your horrible history of mutually antagonizing, torturing, threatening, frightening one another? Get rid of that situation. Deal with your societies 
at the ground where the tension and the conflict begin. Don't organize your societies with a group of people at the top making all the decisions and a mass of people who have to live with them. There's no democracy in the workplace in capitalism. When you cross the threshold into your factory, your office, or your store, you are giving up your democracy. The board of directors in your company where you work, do you vote for them? Never. You don't even know who they are. They make the decision. Will you have the job or not? Will you keep the job or not? Will the job be this way, that way? Will you experience this way? Will you have 42 minutes in the toilet or 12? What? All of that is decided at a level over which you exercise no control. You've accepted that. And if you do it, you are forcing people to learn to live with the opposite of democracy. And if you do that, five out of seven days of the week in the office, the factory, or the store where you earn your living, you're not going to suddenly become democratic in your political appetites either. You're going to actually have to become used to the absence of democracy. And the only thing that makes that more bizarre is when countries like Israel and the United States, which are undemocratic in the workplace, refer to themselves as democracies. At that point, you're in Kaka land. You're in a land in which the words Allah Aldous Huxley have become the opposite of what they were intended to, to signify or to refer to. So if you want a utopian answer, go to the root of the problem. And one of the reasons I would advocate it is everything else that has been tried hasn't worked. That's a hint that you're not going deep enough you're not asking the right questions. What Hamas did provoked Israel. What uh, Israel responds provokes the whole Arab world. This is a dead end. And yet the people doing it, having no other where to go, no other idea of what they might do. Suppose you replaced, last point, suppose you replaced the capitalist system of employer-employee, what would you replace it with? The socialist answer has always been a collective, a democratic workplace. One person, one vote. We decide collectively what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the product. Is that possible? Of course it is. In Israel, it takes you back to the uh -huh, kibbutzim, and you rethink, did we make a mistake by burying that experience? Is there a modern version of doing that? Is it being done around the world? The answer, by the way, to all those questions is yes. The tragedy of Israel and Palestine, nobody even asks the question. Nobody uses class analysis to wonder whether the class structures in both of them are hindrances, are problems. What would it mean to go in a different direction? What would it mean to organize production in a different way? What would it even mean just to think about it and to talk about it? 
Would it be possible in workplaces to make sure that the collective that democratically decides is both Israeli and Arab? Ooh, what an idea. What an idea. Maybe you wouldn't even allow anything else. Maybe you would say there have to be, there has to be at least one Israeli if it's a group of, of Palestinians, and there has to be at least one uh, something. Begin to think about the kinds of ground-level changes that might solve the problem. But I have it easy, because any utopian idea I came up with would be better than what we are watching unfold. Mm -hmm. But in the end, let me re make it real clear. However horrible this all is for the Palestinians, and I can only imagine, and here I'm using the stories my relatives told me when they were still alive about what they had witnessed in Europe. So it's horrible what's happening in Gaza. But what the, what the Israeli community is laying out for its own future, itself, its children, in the, in the isolation with a declining empire, wow, that this can be done without a serious national debate about it. Even if you did it, but you had the debate so that people could think about it as it unfolded, you'd be better off. But they're in the worst place. They're taking this bizarre decision with a blank refusal to think about it that is, is tragic. But if you're, going, if you're going to live through a declining empire, which I can see, I've learned. I spent a lot of my uh, research studying the British Empire. The first book I ever wrote was about the British Empire in Kenya, in East Africa. A book published by Yale University Press, and one of the books you go to if you want to understand colonialism in Kenya. By the way, settler colonialism, refugees from Britain who ex, you know, got rid of the African population in the highlands of Kenya to produce uh, high-quality coffee, which is still their export uh, to this day. So, I mean, I understand the pain, the denial that goes with a declining empire. But here I am, an American, by the fate of history, and I'm watching it unfold here with the sad realization that Americans are not asking the question, what can we learn from how the British went through this? So we make a better, a better thing of it, learn from it. No. And they make the same mistake. The same mistake. We're going to, the Russians are going to collapse in Ukraine and the ruble is going to disappear and Russia is going to get all of wrong, 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 wrong. And here we are, a year and a half later, obviously it's all wrong. No, no lesson. We're going to do more. We're going to give them more missiles and more F-16s. Whoa. What happens to people who cannot imagine 
we blew it. We didn't get it. Maybe we need to ask some other questions. And since I know these people personally, I ask you and your audience, they know who I am, and I'm not the only one, not by a long shot. Why not have a conversation with us? We have no power. You can listen to us, engage us, and go out and have another round of golf. I mean, it's fine with me. I'm ready to do it. You're not even willing to listen. You're like those teachers I had at Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. They don't want to know nothing about it. They are doing their thing in the way they always did it, and it's fine, and we're going to continue, and the whole world, and we're the world, and, and, and mumbling their way down the drain. Anyway, I've taken more of your time. <laughs> well, I wish I could, I wish there were time for me to follow up about how fixing the employer-employee structure would resolve these, I mean, thousand-year disputes over land rights and the corresponding historical claims and religious differences and so on, because I'm sure that's a really fascinating story. But as ever, Richard, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. So thanks again for lending your perspective and your really admirable and so exciting to watch and listen to your, your oratorship and having this conversation with me. Well, let me thank you. That's very kind of you. And let me return it, um, and I mean this very seriously, for you, but for your audience as well. These are the kinds of conversations I believe in. I think that's how human beings are best with each other. How the world looks to you, how the world looks to me, gives me material to think about, opens me up. It's like what I used to say to my students who asked me, what should I do? do, do? And I would say to them, take a trip. Go to another part of the world. Look at how they eat and drink and dance and walk and just open you up to what the realms of possibility are. And you're doing that and you're allowing it. You do it. It takes a long time. You do it over. You know, these are long conversations, particularly for the television mentality that wants everything reduced to two seconds and all that. But you're doing it and you're doing it around important topics and you're willing to bring in people with, with perspectives that aren't often heard. This is an enormously valuable service, and I, I want you to know that, that I see that, and I appreciate it, and I value the opportunity.